I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Dave Stone. Born in Ohio, moved to Oregon in 1980 to get his MS and rec- undergrad degree in community organization, just like Obama. His passion is for protecting the natural world. His talent is photography and writing and organizing. His experience has been leading the successful campaign to achieve 60,000 acres of wilderness protection for the Waldo Lake area and the High Cascades of Oregon, conservation chair for a local Audubon Society and other conservation positions. His current position is president of Douglas Fir National Monument. Here's the the website, https colon uh, org. So first off, thank you for your work in the world, and second, thank you for being on the program. All right. You're welcome. So let's talk about the Let's talk first about where the Douglas Fir National Monument proposal is, and then after that, let's talk about the forests in the region. All right, yeah. It's located um, in the Central Cascades on the west side um, of the Central Cascades in Oregon. The nearest town is Sweet Home. Um, the nearest big town is Salem. So that, that's where we're located. And what sort of what sort of forests are in the region, and what sort of Douglas. other biomes too? Yeah, well, it's primarily Douglas fir, hence our name. Um, Douglas fir is the state tree of Oregon, and it's um, well, we're located in a prime uh, all on public land, which means U.S. Forest Service and a little bit of Bureau of Land Management, um, and the Douglas fir is a prime timber source for local uh, the, the local timber industry. Um, now, we are entirely on public land, so um, some, some in the industry are afraid we, we're going to take over their private properties, which that's not the case. We don't have any designs on private property. Um, if you go to our website, you can see our map. And there are blocks. It's called a checkerboard pattern of private, what we call inholdings, and they're they're within our boundary. But we are we have no designs to take over uh, private property. So, a lot of people when they hear of Doug Fir, they might if they think about Doug Fir at all, they might think about Doug Fir plantations. You know, that's that are that have been created by. Warehouser or some other timber company. What can you talk about the difference between? Are you there, Derek? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I was asking if, when a lot of people think about Doug firs, if they think about them at all, they might think about Doug fir plantations and um, trees in rotation for Warehouser or some. Can you talk about the difference between uh, a Doug fir forest? A Doug fir forest and a Doug fir plantation. Oh yeah, the traditional going back to the early 1900s, the, the traditional forestry practice was to clear cut and replant um, mostly Douglas fir um, and call that a forest. Uh, we don't call that a forest. Um, we call that a tree plantation. And the difference between a forest. And a tree plantation is a forest naturally occurred. Um, some of our, our forest land is, you know, hundreds of years old. Um, the plantations are 
you use the term uh, rotation. They'll do a clear cut and they will replant and um, they will come back in. in it used to be like 60 or 70 years, but they've reduced the rotation to about uh, 30 or 40 years on a good, good growing site. Now, the other problem with um, replanting is they plant them all in straight lines. They plant them all pretty much the same species. And because they plant them all at the same time, they're all same age. So that's not a forest. That's a tree plantation. And what's the difference? Um, a forest supports wildlife. Um, our most famous wildlife is uh, northern spotted owl. We, all ha we also have streams which um, support uh, salmon, and there are a number of other uh, wildlife species that depend on a, a natural forest. A tree plantation doesn't support that kind of um, wildlife. Um, so that's kind of the difference between what, what they used to do and what uh, we advocate for now. So um, what we're trying to do with our National Monument we're trying to restore the natural forest. Now, the term restoration, we have, a, we have a definition of it, and the industry has their own definition. Um, our definition is um, let, it, let it grow back the way it was. Um, so thank you for that. And so I live in, in Redwood Forest, and I always call it Redwood Forest, but... At any time, at any place in the forest, I might see redwoods, western red cedars, Sitka spruce, dug fir, and they'll be in a mix with, I'm going to say, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's say 50% redwood and then 20% western red cedar and everything else is split between Sitka spruce and dug fir, but I could be off by a lot. So if you're in a, in a natural dug fir forest, not a plantation, but if you're in a natural dug fir forest, what are what percentage of the trees do you think might be dug fir? What percentage, and what other trees live in the dug fir forest with them? Well, I answer the second question. I don't know the answer to the first one, although I do know that Douglas fir predominate the forest. Um, the other species of trees that um, occur in a natural forest in the Western Cascade would be. Um, Western red cedar, um, let's see, western uh, hemlock. Um, we don't have much Sitka spruce. That's more of a coastal species. Um, and we have some hardwoods like uh, big leaf maple and alder. Um, so that's kind of the, the mix that we find in a natural forest. Plus there are occasional openings which uh, most people think of as meadows, um, and they have more like wildflowers. The botanists call them forbs. Um, and they have uh, the meadows have kind of a mix of open, open to the sun uh, species of plants. Not 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 so many trees. In fact, um, we lose meadows when. The um, mostly Douglas fir start encroaching encroaching on a meadow, and if that is allowed to happen, 
then we eventually lose those meadows and all the kind of plants and animals that depend on the meadows. Is, I'm sorry if this is a really ignorant question, but um, how old, how old and how big do dug firs get, and at what age do they become uh, sexually mature? I don't know that last question, but um, they can grow up to um, 800 years. We have a a location in our proposal called Crabtree Valley, and there are some 800-year-old trees there. Um, now, there's this misconception about what a forest is. Um, a natural forest, um, old growth is kind of a climax, which means the, the uh, ultimate um, condition of the forest. Um, but a forest goes through succession. And um, when you get a, like a forest fire or even here in Oregon, a volcano or an insect infestation, um, that can wipe out a, a forest and it starts all over. Mostly what happens is that we get a forest fire and that can wipe out the existing forest and the forest starts all over. Um, Old dug firs, when they get really big, um, they develop really thick bark, and uh, that thick bark pretty much resists fires until you have what's called a catastrophic fire that comes, oh, I don't know. It can vary every hundred up to every thousand years. A forest fire will come through and wipe out the existing forest. So um, old growth is a climax state, but that doesn't mean the forest stops um, developing at that point. Um, it slows down a lot, but it doesn't keep keep going past the old growth state. So you you were talking about the the proposal to to make this area a national monument. So bef- before we talk about the why do that. Can you talk about the different levels of protection? But, and I recognize we're all talking about public lands. The different levels of protection for, say, just being owned by BLM, just, be, just being owned by Forest Service, just being owned or being designated National Monument, National Park. What are the levels of protection for, for those different, different designations? Right. Okay. I will take issue with your characterization of the BLM and Forest Service owning the land. The public owns the land. Um, the BLM and Forest Service manages the public land. So that's just a little quibble that a lot of people um, overlook. No, it's great. Um, and in, in fact, I would say they don't just manage the land. They basically destroy it for the most part. Well, I don't want to get into that. But um, because part of our purpose is to... Um, resist that destroying the land. And we've been fairly successful. And I can talk about that a little later, about our success in our changing some of the Forest Service attitudes towards what they're managing. That's great. Okay, back to level, back to level of protection. Um, the highest level of protection is on public land is wilderness. Um, and we have part 
forests or all of five different wilderness areas within our boundaries. Um, wilderness is basically leave it alone. No roads, uh, no mechanized equipment, um, and a minimum 5,000 acre site. Um, and it's, it's set aside at the human use of wilderness, which is not the only use, but the w human use of wilderness is to seek out solitude. And those are kind of the principles of wilderness. Next level down from that is something like a national monument. Now, a national monument, there is no what's called an organic act which defines what a national monument is. Um, for instance, there are some buildings in D.C. that are designated as national monuments. There are other large-scale protections like ours, which are national monuments. Each national monument, when it's designated, is um, there, are, there are rules of management written out for that particular national monument. Um, sometimes national monuments go on to become national parks. Um, one example I like to uh, talk about is Grand Canyon. That, that started out as a national monument. Now, the locals in Arizona didn't really like that very much, and they fought tooth and nail against the Grand Canyon National Monument, if you can imagine that. Um, but the Grand Canyon, of course, approved itself, and now it's a national park, and Arizona calls itself the Grand Canyon State. We face a similar um, opposition here. The local um, county commissioners are opposed to our national monument, but um, they have a lot of misconceptions about what would happen if it becomes a national monument. Now, um, I think I addressed the um, question about BLM versus Forest Service. Um, they all, they each have their own mandates about how they're supposed to manage the forest. Um, BLM generally favors timber cutting and Forest Service, depending on the district, um, often favors um, industrial <coughs> forestry, but we're working on changing that and we're being successful in that. So um, can you talk about current threats to, so, so the area you want to do is 702,500 acres um, my understanding, yeah. and um, are there proposed, uh, current proposed logging within those areas? Well, yes, there is. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> um, the, the thing that really got our attention when we were first working on this um, was a big timber sale put on by the Forest Service, and that involved... Normally, timber sales involve um, maybe 10 or 15 what they call units, um, separate little blocks of forest that they want to, quote, manage. Um, this timber sale is called the QMS timber sale. Um, included, I recently included 200 units and many thousands of acres that they wanted to manage. 
Now, they have to do what's called a NEPA process. NEPA is a National Environmental Policy Act, and it tells the Forest Service and the BLM how they have to communicate with the public about what they want to do. When they want to do a timber sale, like this QMS sale, they draw maps that show where they want to cut, and they want to they show what they want to do with where they want to cut. And they have to have several alternatives. One is called the no-action alternative, which is kind of baseline. Here's what happens to the forest if we don't do anything. And they, in the QMS, had, I think, three other uh, timber sale proposed, excuse me, three other alternatives. And they picked one they called the preferred alternative. Now, NEPA provides for what's called public input. In other words, they have to tell us what they want to do. They have to give us alternatives to look at. And they have to let us have comments on their plans. Well, you can you can go in there and say, hey, don't cut anything down. That's not a very valuable comment. What we do is we go out in the woods and do what we call field checking. We go to the units and we look at them. We say, okay, here's some old growth. Hey, look here. Here's a stream that um, needs to feed into a salmon stream. And you didn't even identify that. So we, along with um, a couple other groups, went out and did the extensive field checking and extensive comments. And when I mentioned the success we had, what ended up was the quality of our comments were so good that they picked a different alternative than their preferred alternative, which is sort of unprecedented. You know, they call it preferred because that's what they'd rather do. And they picked they picked an alternative that was much more to our liking. It wasn't everything we wanted, but it certainly wasn't what they preferred to do. So um, that that's how... Um, the Forest Service ends up deciding how to manage their land. So thank you for that. And um, let's talk a little bit more about the, the National Monument and what would be the steps to convert it from being managed by BLM and Forest Service to getting a National Monument in place to increase the protection? Okay, number one, when a national man monument is established, there is an agency like BLM or Forest Service who does the management according to the management plan that was um, implemented, the management plan that was um, proposed for that land. So a lot of people think they wonder, how do you make a national monument? Well, there's two direct ways to make a national monument. Congress can designate it, or the president can designate it with a stroke of a pen under, what, under what's called the Antiquities Act. Um, now, stroke of a pen sounds easy. It's not very easy to get the president to stroke that pen. Um, he did, Biden's been doing national monuments since he became in office, and he's done the two most recent ones he's done. There was one in Texas, took 30 years 
to get that national monument established. So we have patience. We've been at this for eight years now, and um, we're, we're, we're taking the long view. We're also not sitting around waiting for them to cut down the forest to make it unsuitable to be a national monument. Um, our, our focus now, and we've been working with uh, Congress, um, and um, they're not moving very fast on this. Neither is the president. In the meantime, we are working to make a de facto national monument. In other words, we are working with the Forest Service to uh, implement the kinds of things that a national monument would have once it's designated. Um, and mostly that means uh, recreation. Uh, that's my specialty. When you have good recreation facilities, you get lots of people out in your area, and when you say, hey, get a hold of the president and tell him you want this monument, you got a lot more people um, willing to chime in and say, yeah, we've been there. We think it's a good idea. Let's do it. So that's our current, excuse me, our, excuse me, our current focus is to try to improve the recreation uh, facilities and programs on the forest. And so by recreation, are you meaning mainly hiking and, and fishing and hunting or what do you, what are you meaning by recreation? Oh, you know, the above plus camping. Um, um, I'm a photographer. I, I've done some photography workshops in our proposal. So, uh, whatever it takes to get people out in the wood, and how how is that going? Are you are you gaining some traction with that? With uh, you you talked about both the Grand Canyon and locally having some local opposition. Are you are you winning over a lot of people with that campaign? Um, well, uh, things are pretty slow. Excuse me. Well, let me take a break here. I'll clear my voice. Great. Mostly, what I'm learning right now is the bureaucracy of the Forest Service, which is mostly where our monument is, moves very, very slowly. Um, there's, on the national level, they just, the national forest on the national level <clears throat> introduced something called reimagined recreation. And um, we have kind of run with that, and we're trying to get them to make that real. There's often Forest Service We'll come up with these grand ideas, and they they just flop. They just they well, they, it's not that they flop; they get ignored and they never get implemented. We are determined on the national level to get that thing going. So our our idea is to propose pilot to pilot projects where um, we have specific. I um, specific recreation amenities that will help get people out in the woods and understand why it's important to protect it. And um, that's where we're at. We're right now with the Forest Service. We're proposing these pilot projects and watching the wheels turn very slowly as they, um, as they go through their process to um, implement their recreation plans. 
so what you've you've mentioned some wilderness areas in the area is there um is there can you talk how, how give people an an idea of of you've set us on the in the cascades but is it surrounded by areas that are protected for the most part or are are there a lot of um larger places built up around it well we have very little um development in our forest the nearest town is sweet home and it's maybe 20 miles 20 miles away from our area so uh let me talk a little bit about wilderness um and to try to characterize it um you you kind of implied that there's some sort of protection beyond the boundary of wilderness there is no such thing as a buffer of wilderness the boundary of the a wilderness area is the buffer. Um, so to characterize our wilderness, we go all the way from um, the Mount Jefferson wilderness, which is, um, I'd say half of it's what they call rock and ice. That, those are the easiest wilderness areas to get designated starting back in the, the 60s um, because they don't have timber. And so it was easy to say, let's protect this. Uh, the Mount Jefferson also has some some forest all the way down. That that elevation is as high as oh, I'd say ten thousand feet. Um, goes down to maybe um, six thousand feet. One of our other wilderness areas is called the Menagerie Wilderness. It's a low elevation wilderness down at uh, two to three thousand feet mostly entirely forest. So that's kind of the range of the kind of um, characterization of the, the kind of land we have. We have um, also Mount Washington Wilderness, which is also rock and ice. We've got uh, the Middle San Diego Wilderness, which is mostly low elevation forest um, wilderness. Now, when I talk to people at events, um, to try to tell them what we're up to. People like to assume that we want to make the whole thing wilderness. Um, that's not, our area is not eligible for any more wilderness because um, there's too many roads. There's no blocks of un, unroaded, uncut land in our proposal that is 5,000 acres or more. So we we have, we have to disabuse people of the idea that we're going for a wilderness. Um, and we we explain what a forest is and what we want to do with restoring the forest. Now, um, as far as restoring the forest goes, um, we are trying to get the, for, the Forest Service, they're, they're starting to cooperate. We're trying to get them focused on um, um, the timber sale, the timber plantations, bring them back to a natural, put them, excuse me, put them on a path of becoming ultimately national or a natural forest. Um, and like I said, we're having some success with that. Um, the alternative they picked on the QMSL does pretty much that. And it is also not only just that timber sale, but it's also influencing um, future timber sales where they're planning to stay out of 
any forest where the trees are 80 years old or older. And that's the kind of forest we like. So, you know, something that, that we haven't talked about, but you do mention on your website that is something that I have been fighting since the 80s is um, I, want, I want to just read to you a couple of your Q&As and, uh, on the FAQ page and uh, if you could talk to those for a second because I think this is really important. Your question is, doesn't America need the lumber and other wood products from federal public forest lands? And your answer is mo more raw log volume cut on private land in Oregon and Washington is exported to Japan, China, and Korea than is cut off federal lands, public lands in these two states. Um, and don't we need logging jobs on Forest Service land? Since the Northwest Forest Plan was implemented, the number of mills and milling jobs has decreased by half, while the milling capacity of the remaining mills has increased by one quarter. Automation replaced the log jobs and more. And that was really, when I was a baby activist back in the 80s, I remember getting just so frustrated because it was always presented as jobs versus owls. And at the same time that the cut was going up, the number of jobs were going down because of raw lag exports and uh, automation, but nobody in the press would talk about that. So I just wanted to thank you for putting that on your website. Well, yeah, that's, that's one of our most important points when we face opposition is just what, just what you described, that we're going to eliminate jobs. We aren't eliminating jobs. The industry is eliminating jobs. It's not just automation in the mills. It's mechanization in the woods. They have these uh, machines that go through and they cut down trees um, willy-nilly. Um, and I don't have numbers on this, but each machine cuts down um, not only the trees, but it cuts down jobs because one guy can cut as many, as many trees as many loggers could cut down. So, yeah, that's, that's an important point that we like to make when we talk to opposition is that um, you want to um, save jobs, stop automating your mills. And you mentioned spotted owls, and this is an honest question. Um, I haven't really been following spotted owls for the past few years. Are their populations still in precipitous decline, or are they? is anything good happening there? Well... They're, they're, I'd say they're at best holding their own. Now, there are, there are called, what's called spotted owl reserves in the forest where the forest service can't put timber cell in those. Those are mostly old growth stands. Now, the newest threat to the spotted owl is the barn owl. It's an East Coast species that made its way across the country through southern Canada, and they're very aggressive, and they compete for the food and the territory of the spotted owls. So the spotted owls are in no way um, making a recovery. Keep keep going. Was there more? Um, well, let me let me think. Um, no, the the barn owl, I guess, is the biggest threat to spotted owls on non public land now. The rules that there are no spot owl reserves on private property. And because we aren't really involved in private property, I cannot speak um, 
from a lot of information on what's going on with spotted owls on private land. So you 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 mentioned in holdings a couple times, and uh, just to be to can you clarify the the for people say who live in the east what an in holding is, and then talk about how the the monument uh, status would or would not affect in holdings. Okay, um, and in in holdings um, in our area, I'm not sure where they came from, but they're blocks of private property in what's called a checkerboard pattern um, through, most, well, no, there's some in Forest Service. Um, and I haven't been able to get a straight answer about where that those inholdings came from. It, was prob- but, it quite, quite possibly could have been the railroad land grants. Well, it's possible. That mostly was in the Coast Range. And um, we don't have railroads much in our monument. So I'm not sure that that's my suspicion, but I can't get a straight answer about that. Nobody really seems to know where the inholdings in our area came from. But for my East Coast, your East Coast listeners, um, if you go to our website, look at our map, you'll see this checkerboard pattern um, on our map. Every I think they're white blocks. All the white blocks are private inholdings, and um, so those are the ones the industry is afraid we're going after. And that's not true. We are not going after the inholdings. And in fact, if it's a private inholding, you would think that that would uh, improve the value of their land because now you're surrounded by land that you know nobody else can put in a subdivision on, or well, I guess it's it's Forest Service. So it's less likely to have a clear cut on. So it seems like this would actually be good for you if you did live in there. Well, um, that's debatable. Um, now, they are putting clear cuts in their private inholdings, so I don't, I don't think that's um, an argument in favor of um, our monument. Um, the inholdings are basically business as usual. The traditional. Um, industrial model of clear cutting um, and replanting. Now, let me mention one more thing when we talk about the industrial model. When they clear cut, um, they also do aerial herbicide spraying, which um, is their, their practice of trying to suppress competing vegetation. If you left the land alone and didn't spray it, and you clear cut it, you open up all that land to the sunlight and lots of shrubby um, plants get established and they compete for with for the sunlight for the newly planted saplings. And so they go through and they do uh, aerial spraying. Now you don't, that's been banned on public lands now. Um, but, you know, you can't keep the spray out of the streams that do run from private into public, and that's not good for the fish. Yeah, I've I've written about that, and and fish are a significant concern to me. And um, all those herbicides being sprayed into the streams is also, frankly, not good for humans or anybody else who lives downstream. Right, right. That's some pretty horrifying stuff. 
Yeah. Now, that brings up another angle on the jobs angle. When our, our salmon population is in steep decline and there's lots of efforts to try to reverse that, not very successful. But when you talk about jobs, you have to talk about fishing jobs, too. When you lose the salmon, you lose the fishing jobs. So it's not jobs versus the environment. It's jobs versus jobs. Right. Right. So we have about 10 minutes left. Can you talk a little bit about your... Um talk about the organization and tell people how to find out about it and tell them how they can help with your help with your work. Okay. Um, well, the best way to get involved with us is go to our website on the, the homepage. There's at the bottom of the homepage, my email is on that page. You can send me an email, say, put me on your, uh, your email list. And what that does, it gives you our quarterly newsletter. Um, it gets you our alerts. What it does not get is doesn't get you on anybody else's email list, which a lot of people get annoyed about. We do not sell, exchange, release in any way the email addresses that we collect. It's too hard to get them to make them. Well, let me not, not say that. Let me just say that that's how you can get involved with us. When you go on our web our webpage, at the banner at the top, there is a button called Donate. Of course, every group wants you to donate. Now, we have no staff, and that was deliberate, a deliberate decision that we wouldn't have staff because when you have staff, you have a big fundraising um, expectation to support the staff. So we don't inundate you with um, please to please to donate. We do mention that in our newsletter and in our alerts, but um, there's no um, mass mailing saying, "Hey, we're we're dying here. Unless you donate to us, we're going to die." Now I know many people, myself included, get those kind of emails, and I ignore those. If you get an email like that that didn't come from us, don't blame us because we did not release your name. So that's the answer to how to get involved. Well, it's more than just learning about what we're doing. Go through our webpage, learn about what we're up to. But when we send an alert, we really want you to respond to that alert. And we don't, we don't it's not clickbait. We don't want click to this as they call them, people that just click yes. Um, we send you an alert. It tells you how to find out who to contact this person this, um, about this issue. We tell you the talking points of the issue. You put it in your own words, and you send it off. That is the most valuable thing. If you click, if we don't provide you a, a check mark to click. Um, studies have shown that those kind of um, responses from the public are basically ignored. Um, they're they're treated like one letter. You you can generate you know hundreds of um, 
emails like that, they're treated like one email. If you write it in your own words, it has much more impact than if you just click on a button and says that sends automatically sends an email. So that's how to support us. Go to our website, learn about us, um, get on our list, keep up with what's going on through our newsletter, and respond to our alerts. Sure, send us some money if you want. We do have printing costs and travel costs, so but we don't have to support um, a job. We're not we're not job creators. Yeah, we are out here in Oregon uh, saving our little part of the world. Um, there are many little parts of the world that need protection. Um, and I would urge your listeners to find a local credible group that's working to protect the land and help them out. Send them money, get on their list, um, respond to their alerts. And um, yeah, I would encourage you to do that. Um, my first um, campaign was a success, and um, that encourages me to keep keep working on it. The, it's it's not easy work, but if you persist, um, you can uh, make a difference. So one last thing can you can you give the the website again, please? Okay. Well, you can Google Friends of Douglas River National Monument, and we usually come up first. But let me get it out here. Um, it's www.alloneworddouglasfirnationalmonument.org. Well, thank you so much for that, and thank you for all your great work in the world. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Dave Stone. This is Derek Gentum for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.